This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello, everyone. You are listening to Episode 5 of Season 4. I'm your podcast host, Rachel DePompa, and I am so thankful to each and every one of you who continue to go on this journey with us. I love surprising you with all the different stories we have each week. You never know if we're going to talk about something from one year ago or 400 years ago. Isn't it great? Also, if you are on Instagram, follow our new page, How We Got Here VA. This week, we are going to make you think. We are turning back the clock on the week of November 2nd through the 8th. Let's take you back to middle school American history class. We're talking about the Louisiana Purchase and the expedition to the Northwest that's been immortalized by the names of two Virginia-born men who led the adventure, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Talk to students as two almost heroic figures in American lore. The pair and the group they traveled with were known as the Corps of Discovery, tasked with braving the unknown of the American frontier. The Corps of Discovery begins with this object of finding the mythical Northwest Passage. So if that is the measure of the success or failure of the mission, then the core of discovery fails. It does not uncover a Northwest Passage, a passage that will expedite American commerce into the American West. That's because the Northwest Passage didn't exist. Most of you will remember that much if you paid any attention in school. But now you need to forget what you think you know about Lewis and Clark. It's time to take a hard look at this fabled expedition to wash away the shine of American myth-making and uncover the lesser-known aspects of the Lewis and Clark that you certainly never learned in school. When we asked our sponsors at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and the Library of Virginia for an expert on Lewis and Clark, they both agreed on one man, Dr. Gregory Smithers. I'm a professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and I'm also a British Academy global professor with the Treated Spaces Research Cluster at the University of Hull in England. My area of specialty is in uh, Native American history, environmental history, and the history of settler colonialism. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about these interactions and encounters between indigenous peoples throughout North America and Europeans and European Americans. His interest in these relationships grew from his early days growing up in Australia. And yes, my executive producer, Colton, did this interview and failed to mention that Dr. Gregory Smithers was Australian. Didn't find that out until I started to log the interview. Don't you just love that accent? 
When I was coming of age in the late 1980s and early 1990s, there was this sort of burst of really fantastic scholarship on settler colonialism, on First Nations land rights and treaty rights. In addition to the fact that uh, Australia during those years in the 1980s and 1990s was in the throes of grappling with its own settler colonial past, and that included dealing with issues of land rights for Aboriginal people. And what I discovered once I got to university in the early 1990s was that there was this incredible synergy, not only with the United States, but many other settler colonial sites throughout the world during the early modern period and, in, and into the present. And if your mind works like mine, scary thought there, <laughs> you're probably wondering how the heck an Australian ends up in central Virginia. I first came to Richmond, it would have been the late 1990s. And at that time, I thought, well, I'm never coming back here. Ouch. Don't worry. He eventually learned to love this area. I grew up in Sydney, Australia, so, you know, big, loud, kind of brash city. And smaller American cities just seemed not quite my pace at that time in, in my life. However, my research kept bringing me back here and I kept discovering parts of central Virginia and Richmond in particular that were really, you know, quite attractive to, to raising a family and, and, and certainly to being a professional historian. There's just a wealth of information, archival knowledge and very active native nations and communities throughout Virginia and down into North Carolina that for someone like me and my interests makes this place you know, an ideal location to do my work. So I've been here now since 2011. Now that we know who we'll be learning from, let's get back to our story. It was November 7th, 1805, when Meriwether Lewis wrote in his diary that the Corps of Discovery finally saw the Pacific Ocean after 18 months and 4,000 miles. Well, Turns out that was not what they were looking at that November day. More on that later. We have to go back to why President Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark West in the first place. What you begin to see is a real acceleration in the interests of wealthy and landed Virginians wanting to expand into the frontiers of the American South and into what they would have understood as the West in the mid to late 18th century, which we would understand today as the Midwest, places like the Ohio River Valley, for example. And we're talking about family names like Jefferson, Washington, the Bowman family, both Lewis and Clark's families also very much interested in extending and speculating on land in the so-called Old West. And it's here where we begin to diverge from the traditional teachings in American classrooms, because this wasn't just an adventure to explore and settle land that was thought to be up for grabs. One of the things that that involved was dispossessing Native people. And they came to that work with a great deal of vigor. 
By the time the Seven Years' War ended in 1763, Virginians, like many other settler colonial Americans, European Americans, were of the opinion that native people were sort of entrenched in their savagery, were prone to behaviors like theft and lying and deception. Their experiences on the frontier in places like Kentucky and in Ohio sort of confirmed that for them and gave them a sense that they themselves were under siege, that native communities were laying siege to these honest, hardworking, brave frontiers people. And as I say, the, the Clark family was among those. One of William Clark's brothers was out in the Ohio Valley and made a, something of a name for himself beginning in the 1789 and into the 1790s as an Indian killer. And that leads us to the turn of the century and Thomas Jefferson's first term as president in 1801 and why he was so eager to acquire the Louisiana Territory. Take that opportunity to then begin to, as they saw it, explore the American West so that they could open up these vast domains for commerce primarily, but ultimately as Jefferson saw the American West, this would be the safety valve of the American Republic, of American democracy, where American settlers could go out into the frontiers and make wilderness spaces civilizations. But you could only begin to do that if you had knowledge of the landscapes, the waterscapes of the American West, and with that knowledge came power to transform these domains. Here's your refresher on the Louisiana Purchase in a How We Got Here nutshell. The U.S. paid France $15 million. Man, did the French get ripped off. <laughs> and doubled its land mass with an area we now know as Louisiana, as well as more than 800,000 square miles to the north and west. So Jefferson approaches his private secretary at the time, a U.S. Army captain named Meriwether Lewis, and asks him to lead the expedition. Lewis turned to William Clark, a former captain in the army, to join him. Some people may think that the Lewis and Clark expedition was just that, two men who mapped out the West in search of the Northwest Passage to live out President Thomas Jefferson's dream of learning more about the frontier and the land his government had just purchased for a staggering sum. Well, staggering for that time period. And that's part of the American legend, partners going out into the American West. And this is where the cowboy legend of the late 19th and early 20th century sort of comes from, is this legend that they have these rugged individualists going out there into the American West, blazing a path for American freedom and democracy. There are several things about that that are worth noting. One is, not only is it not the case, but they're doing it with the backing and funding of the United States government. And when you think about it that way, it's easier to understand why men with knowledge of the West were chosen to accompany Lewis and Clark. They weren't going to be able to do it alone. So they take with them men who are experienced trappers and hunters, 
And that's important because you want individuals with those skills because when supplies get low, you need to live off the land. So that's the first group of white men that are taken with them. The other are lower ranking military officers, sergeants and captains. William Clark even brings along his slave named York. What you have then in all of these personnel are examples that have been shaped into mythology, framed around exploring and uncovering the unknown. And what you actually have is government-sponsored scientific invasions of these territories that are snapshots of both American social hierarchies. So you have people like Lewis and Clark and you have enslaved people like York and you have quote-unquote white trash, the hunters and the trappers who help feed the expedition. And then you have the lower military officers These guys are engaged basically then in a generalized, advanced military incursion into Indian territories. Because what you see, Lewis and Clark's expedition under the cover of exploration and science, ostensibly staffed by military personnel, and that's the nature of American exploration for the next two generations. Before this expedition, the U.S. government had never sponsored anything like this mission. Jefferson, renowned for his intelligence on a variety of subjects, wanted scientific cataloging done along the way for his own interests, as well as the country's economic prospects. And in his instructions, Jefferson makes this very clear to Lewis and Clark that their object is to explore the Missouri River and then to look for principal waterways that connect to that Missouri and hopefully lead all the way to the Pacific Ocean, right? This is the famous search for the Northwest Passage that again, school children learn from a very early age. That's the core of discovery. And a lot of the national myth building and myth making that's occurred around Lewis and Clark is about this sort of heroic search for a Northwest Passage that will advance American commerce. The journey began in May of 1804 from Fort Dubois, just outside of St. Louis. It was slow going at first, and the reason we know so much about this expedition is that most of the men kept diaries, both for themselves and for lawmakers. They're recording what they see, they're taking measurements of temperature and river flow, and they're recording their observations of plant and animal species. All of this is sort of to be cataloged so that American policymakers can ultimately ascertain how American colonialism can expand into this vast domain. Dr. Smithers says, based on the many diaries and journals, the biggest concern among this core of discovery was Native Americans stealing their precious supplies. They perceived Native peoples as pilfering set, to borrow a phrase from Lewis's journal. These are people who, they're beggars, they can't be trusted, they're cowards. These ideas had been sort of circulating in American culture for quite some time. Their first encounter with Native people occurred fairly early on along the Missouri River. They encountered the 
Oto and Missouri Indians, and they spend some time with those communities before heading on to encounter farther west the Lakota peoples, who they refer to as the Yankton Sioux and the Teton Sioux. Many of the Lakota peoples had begun to have some experience with Europeans, just as native peoples back east had started to get a read on these Europeans throughout the 18th century. And they were kind of shady characters, honestly. I mean, the Cherokee up through Tennessee and, and into their hunting grounds in Kentucky were often really leery of Europeans, particularly the Virginians, who they perceived as Uskaliski. That's a Cherokee word that means greedy. The Virginians were Uskaliski. Just as Lewis and Clark had their preconceived ideas or stereotypes of Native people, word of shady white men was spreading among Native tribes as well. We have European Americans perceiving Native Americans as thieves, prone to violence, constantly manipulating their appearance and identity and tricking unsuspecting settlers. What we see from the actual evidence is the opposite is the case. There's plenty of evidence written in the hand of both Lewis and Clark to suggest that it was Lewis and Clark and the men who accompanied them who were the ones doing the pilfering and the stealing and the thieving. We learn in one of the journals that the Corps of Discovery was looking for wood. It was scarce. And they finally find some that Native Americans clearly and carefully covered with rocks. So they just took it. These reports pop up again and again. The men saying they were justified in taking this stuff. We quote unquote found it. No one was using it. It was just lying out. We found it and we quote unquote made use of it in a way that Native people weren't making use of it. And this is something that happens again and again, the sort of justification of the Corps' theft and doublespeak and their treachery throughout the 18 months. This treachery wasn't just carefully done behind the Native people's backs. Sometimes it was so brash and bold, it's hard to believe. One example of this is in March of 1806, Lewis is sort of at his wit's end with the Clatsop people, who are a Chinookan-speaking people in the Pacific Northwest. And he sort of, you know, retires to his journal, complaining that, you know, they need a canoe. The Corps need a canoe, and the Clatsop people are asking too much. The price is just far too high for this canoe. So what he decides to do is that, well, well, we'll just take it from them. If they're not willing to trade equitably, as Lewis sees it, then we'll pinch the thing from them. Now, we do have to take some time to tell you about some of the supplies that this Corps of Discovery had with them that they didn't steal from Native tribes. And I guarantee this is not something you learned in school. Some of the stuff that's typically not part of the popular narrative, which is the vast pharmacopoeia that Lewis and Clark took with them on their journey west. Basically, these guys were hopped up on something most of the time. One of the things that we all learn in school is that these settlers and explorers, right? Explorers are people who go out and search. 
were presented this material as though these are brave, self-reliant individuals. They have noble morals and intentions, highly disciplined individuals. One of the things that historians for generations emphasized is that, you know, this founding generation of American leaders and explorers practiced abstinence. Right? There was no possible way, for example, that Thomas Jefferson would have had a three decades long affair with one of his enslaved people on his plantation. Well, we now know that that is actually the case. Right, so there's this sort of desire to create these national myths and these mythically perfect individuals. This idea passed on through generations that these men were perfect in every way. These guys are so rational that they wouldn't lower themselves to engage in intimate relations with native and or African-American people. And this is something that popular historians have emphasized for a long time. It's an easier and more efficient way of thinking of them, but it's simply not true. Based on what the Corps of Discovery brought with them, it's incredibly clear that they weren't the heroes we perhaps thought they were. And a warning, if you are listening with children, there's some adult content and you may want to skip ahead. Three minutes, starting now. They fully expected members of this party to engage in intimate sexual encounters with Native women. And I mentioned they have this pharmacopoeia of medicines that they accumulate before they head off from Fort Dubois. And the list is long. I mean, they have supplies of laudanum, which they use to treat things like coughs. They have supplies of opium to treat pain. They bring chamomile with them, which at the time was used to treat worms. And they have a very healthy supply of mercury, which is used to treat syphilis. Additionally, they bring along with them a healthy supply of, of penis syringes. And what they would do is they would use those syringes and fill them with mercury. And they also had salves that they would use also to treat men suffering from, from syphilis. And so they're prepared. Right? They're prepared for these types of intimate encounters. On one hand, because they've got these stereotypes already existing in their head that Native women, many Native women, are predisposed to this type of behavior. It's a very interesting psychology because what they're doing is they're sort of absolving themselves of all responsibility or historical agency for engaging in these behaviors. These stereotypes toward Native women are perhaps most evident in the diaries, using a word that is still considered extremely offensive. These ideas that all Native women are squaws, and that language punctuates every single member's journal who is a part of the Corps of Discovery, referring to Native women in the derogatory Lewis and Clark have all of these attitudes that they bring with them to their expedition. Clark, for example, during that first winter, the end of 1804, when they spend time in the Mandan village, he refers to nearby Arikara women as quote-unquote handsome squaws. There are numerous reports of quote-unquote amorous contact with Chinook damsels, as it's described in their, in their diaries and journals. 
This is white men on this journey, and it's also Clark's enslaved servant, York, who, by most reports, has a pretty healthy sexual appetite. According to some of the observations in the journals, is presented with multiple women at any given time. This stuff is is common in the American West at the time, which is not to say that it's a positive or a good thing, but what it is to say is that Europeans were engaged in an economy of expansion and exploration that also involves manipulation and exploitation. If you skipped ahead, welcome back. This brings us to a how we got here rabbit hole concerning a possible child born from relations between Lewis and a Lakota woman. The other question I think that comes up about this relates to Lewis and Clark. And the famous sort of phrase about this is whether they themselves kept their buckskins buttoned up during the 18 months that they were away. There's no clear evidence that they did engage in intimate sexual relations with Native people. However, there are Lakota oral histories, and there is the gravesite of an individual by the name of Joseph Lewis de Smith. Joseph Lewis de Smith was born in 1805 and died in 1889. And his headstone notes that he is the son of Meriwether Lewis of the famed Lewis and Clark expedition. Furthermore, there's documentation dated from June 18, 1872, that notes Joseph de Summit Lewis, who, according to this documentation, was baptized at the Yankton Agency at the age of 68. His parents are listed as Captain Meriwether Lewis, the Lewis and Clark expedition, and his mother is given as a woman by the name of Winona. And so part of the oral histories and speculation that swirled around Joseph de Smith Lewis is that there was a marriage of sorts between Meriwether Lewis and Winona. It's one of those stories that will probably remain unsolved for some time unless further documentation comes to light. But it's out there, and it does give you an indication that the contact between uh, Native and people of European descent often transcended boundaries of just the sort of cold political and economic interaction. There's one other person who becomes part of Lewis and Clark's expedition, whose legend and importance seems to inflate over time. Sacagawea is another one of those famous characters in American mythmaking. She, not unlike Pocahontas, emerges as one of those friendly Indians, the good Indians who help the Europeans and helps them navigate their way through the world and helps them feed themselves and so on and so forth. The historical reality is far more complex and frankly far more interesting than the mythology. The Shoshone girl was taken captive by a neighboring tribe around the age of 11 or 12. She was basically adopted into a new culture and learned a new language. That's where she met this French fur trader by the name of Toussaint Chavanou. Chavanou was kind of the quintessential fur trader. He was pretty disgusting had a pretty bad reputation among Lewis and Clark 
On one occasion, Chauvinot was accused of almost losing a whole cache of, of documents that Wilson Clark had accumulated and artifacts that they had collected after he got into some trouble on one of his canoes, only to be saved by Sacagawea, who kept her calm, whereas Chauvinot lost his mind and, and almost tipped the whole thing over into the water. Chauvinot was thought to treat Sacagawea pretty shabbily and violently, according to some accounts. She was the only woman that was part of the Corps of Discovery, and during the journey, she became close with William Clark. They share a relationship that is trusting. There's been suspicion of a sexual relationship, although I've not uncovered any sort of explicit evidence to confirm that one way or the other. But nonetheless, that rumor has existed in the relationship for some time. Clark basically, I think, sees himself, based on what we know, as sort of this paternalistic figure who is looking out for Sacagawea during the course of their, their journey to the Pacific Northwest. And he sort of, you know, perceives himself as both superior in a masculine sense, but also a racial sense to try and protect her from the, from the worst abuses of what he sees, Clark sees, as an abusive husband. Interesting, though, uh, the one thing I will say about this is that Sacagawea is a marginal figure in Shoshone history, much in the same way that Pocahontas is marginal to Pamunkey history. The day-to-day details of their journey could make up more than a season of how we got here. But after a year and a half, Lewis and Clark believed they've reached the ultimate goal of their journey— on November 7th, 1805. Lewis wrote in his diary that day, quote, Great joy in camp. We are in view of the ocean, this great Pacific Ocean, which we have been so long anxious to see. Sorry, Meriwether, not quite. The group was actually at the edge of a large bay in modern-day Washington state, some 20 miles from the Pacific. With the help of a local Native American tribe, of course, they were able to cross and eventually reach their final destination just over a week later. Their journey complete, they spend the winter months in a fort before heading back towards St. Louis, splitting into three separate groups to further explore rivers of the Northwest. They ultimately meet back up. On their routes back, what we see is many of the the behaviors that occurred on the outward bound journey. So there are people who are still in need of healthy doses of laudanum and opium to treat pain and various ailments that people have. Those syringes from earlier are still being used. There's still clearly intimate interpersonal relations that are going on during their stops among indigenous communities. And there's still the same attitudes about native thievery and untrustworthiness that the members of the Corps of Discovery traveled back to St. Louis with them. Lewis and Clark return as heroes in the fall of 1806, and their subsequent report to President Jefferson is viewed as an incredible success. As some of their diaries and experiences are presented to the public, it is quickly transformed into an advertising platform to encourage people to do their part and help civilize 
the wilderness of the West. It also says to people that there are these untapped opportunities. You know, there's not enough land back east. Well, here are these opportunities in the vast expanses of the American West. And there are these uncivilized, quote unquote, savages out there. And they're not using most of this land. And those that are certainly not using it in the kind of civilized, sedentary way that we would use it with our plantations and our farmsteads and the construction of our towns and churches. In the years after this epic journey, the paths of Lewis and Clark couldn't have been more different. Three years after returning to Hero, Meriwether Lewis commits suicide. William Clark continued the mission of American expansion to the West, also meaning he was involved in the decimation and removal of Native Americans, forever tying him to an era known as the Trail of Tears. November 7, 1805, Lewis and Clark believed they found the Pacific. What they saw wasn't what it appeared, much like their expedition. Both Virginia-born men, remembered for centuries through American myth and legend, remembered as heroes who revealed the opportunity of the frontier at the expense of those who called that land home for generations. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. More than 70 Army recruits on their way to basic training in South Carolina. Young men preparing for war leave their homes in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland for the final time in late 1961. They would not perish on the battlefield, instead meeting their demise in a patch of dense pine woods in central Virginia. Their final moments can only be described as a kind of excruciating torture the eternal grasp of death, a moment of calm amid the chaos of being trapped inside a burning metal tube. November 8, 1961, Imperial Airlines Flight 201-8 crashes trying to land at the modern-day Richmond International Airport, killing 74 recruits and three crew members. At the time, it was the deadliest plane crash in Virginia history and second deadliest in the history of the United States for a single civilian aircraft. For many of the passengers, it was their very first plane ride. Tickets weren't cheap in 1961. But because these boys were headed off to join the Army, Uncle Sam was picking up the tab. But in true Uncle Sam fashion, he was trying to cut corners and take the cheapest option. 
which at the time meant hiring what was known as a non-sked plane. Basically, these were tiny airline companies using war surplus planes that were sketchy at best. Non-sked comes from the fact they didn't have set schedules and waited to be hired, much like a taxi company. Because of the low prices, they often received government contracts. But this tragedy would reveal the horrific price of trying to pinch pennies in the skies. We need to take a moment to mention Selden Richardson, who wrote an article for the Shaco Examiner website on this tragedy. It's one of the few pieces about the crash that goes into the kind of detail we love to bring you in every episode of How We Got Here. Let's go back to where this story began, in the early morning of November 8, 1961. The plan was for the plane to go from Columbia, South Carolina, to pick up recruits in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, before returning to the Palmetto State. The plane itself was known as a Constellation, or Connie. It was a vintage World War II design meant for long-range troop transport, but became useful for civilian flights later on because of its capacity. Four propellers and their accompanying engines powered the aircraft into the skies. By the time of this ill-fated flight, the Connies weren't being used by major carriers anymore. But these non-sked airlines were going to get whatever they could out of the planes to maximize profits. There were five crew members on board Flight 201-8. A stewardess, a student training under Flight Engineer William Poitras, First Officer James Greenlee, and Captain Ronald Conway. Despite their titles, Greenlee and Conway were of equal rank and this caused confusion when things started to go wrong. And that started shortly after the final batch of recruits were picked up from Baltimore, as the plane began its journey back to South Carolina under the darkness of night. Fuel pressure began to drop in engine three. Flight engineer Poitras tried to correct it by adjusting the fuel flow Amid the panic, mass miscommunication between crew members as they tried to figure out what was going on. Suddenly, engine three died, and then engine four followed. The crew frantically tried to restart both to no avail. You can imagine that for many of the Army recruits on board, they had to know something was going wrong. These propeller engines were loud. So to suddenly hear nothing from one side of the plane had to be disconcerting. Remember, most of these young men had never flown in a plane before. Captain Conway knew he had to make an emergency landing, and the closest runway was Richmond's Bird Field, what is now Richmond International Airport. At this point, it appeared the plane would avoid tragedy become a blip in the history of flight that would soon be forgotten. But as Flight 201-8 descended toward the lights on the ground, 
The crew realized they were coming in too high. They would need to make another pass to land safely. But as Captain Conway pulled the plane up to try again, engine number one stalled, leaving a lone propeller and its engine to do the job of four. It wasn't enough. Soon, pine branches began flying by the windshield. The plane skimmed the tops of the tallest trees before the loss of momentum became too much. Less than a mile from the airport, right off Charles City Road, the plane hit the ground and exploded. The airport sent rescue units. Members of the National Guard responded. Even civilians rushed to the scene to help in any way they could or simply watch history unfold before their eyes. The first thing many of them saw had to offer some relief. Two men running from the crash site to escape the flames. Captain Conway was able to squeeze through one of the broken windows of the cockpit and flight engineer Poitras dashed out the crew door. The onlookers' initial relief soon turned into a dire depression. Of the 79 people on board, 74 recruits and five crew members, Conway and Poitras were the only survivors. The next morning, the overnight inferno had finally gone out, allowing crews to recover the dead. The scene was horrific. Few of the victims died on impact. Later autopsies by the medical examiner confirmed that many of those inside the plane lived through several minutes of literal hell on earth, surrounded by fire, bones badly broken, gasping for air. Most would die from carbon monoxide poisoning. Those victims may have had two minutes, 120 seconds, of suffering. The greatest number of those who perished were found near the main cabin door. They had gotten out of their seats in a last-ditch effort of survival without success. The cabin door was jammed shut from both the crash impact and debris piled on the outside. The medical examiner went on to detail the fractured arms and legs of many of the victims, possibly as a result of absolute desperation to cling to life, trying to claw and beat their way out. If the carbon monoxide didn't take their lives, the fire did. No safety procedures were reviewed before takeoff, and it appears that none of the passengers knew about the exits over each wing that could have saved them from the burning tube of torture. The loss of these soon-to-be soldiers was soon known around the country. Time magazine zeroed in on these non-SCED airlines, specifically Imperial, the company responsible. What they found was astonishing. Captain Conway had failed some of his flight tests. The planes Imperial used shouldn't have been leaving the ground to begin with. Problems like faulty fuel gauges, bald tires, even fuel leaking out of the planes onto the ground. 
The constellation's fuel was found to be contaminated with rust. Perhaps worst of all, during testimony after the disaster, a mechanic admitted he couldn't find the right size replacement part for one of the engines on the constellation, so he used a part from a 1954 Mercury car and cut it down to size using a hacksaw. I don't even know what to say about that. Wow. A four-week investigation by the Civil Aeronautics Board blamed several factors for the crash, including poor airline management, substandard maintenance, and crew error, mainly the miscommunication and confusion over some commands that were apparently given and then rescinded in the midst of the panic. The crash even led to congressional hearings and stricter standards. The military would eventually stop using low-budget commercial carriers. Imperial went out of business. November 8, 1961. In the middle of the night, less than a mile from safety, more than 70 Army recruits would die in Central Virginia because of incompetence and greed. Young men leaving their homes and families to serve their country, repaid with torturous death, all to save a few dollars. They returned to their hometowns in flag-draped coffins, a devastating lesson learned. Voting is a civic duty, a right, and many would say an honor. It's what democracies do. It's what makes us Americans. And voting for a president is largely looked upon as the highest of those honors, deciding who will lead our nation. But what happens when you are a nation divided? Not politically, but truly divided. I mean, split in two, one side just up and leaving. Arguably, one of the most important events in American history is the American Civil War. It resulted in the emancipation of four million people who had been held in bondage. The American Civil War also cemented the fact that we were one nation indivisible. This history is incredibly important to understand how we got to where we are today. And how we got here was cemented with a presidential election for the Confederate States of America. November 6, 1861, the Confederacy votes and confirms moderate Jefferson Davis for a six-year term as its leader. Six years, not four. They wanted the president to not have to spend his entire term trying to run for re-election or to be even beholden to the idea of running for re-election. And so the president of the Confederate States of America could be elected to one six-year term and not ever run again. 
And if you recognize that voice, it's because this is the man who told us all about the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth back in season three. I'm Andy Talkov, and I'm the Senior Director for Curatorial Affairs at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. We are super excited to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. So we hope you enjoyed your first time around. I did. I'm really excited to be back. This is a great series. I'm really looking forward to telling this story today. The story of how Jefferson Davis became president of this newfound rebellion. He certainly didn't start out wanting the job. Jefferson Davis actually hoped that his provincial presidency would be just that. It would be provincial. I mean, Jefferson Davis was very reluctant to take the job in the beginning, although he was a statesman who believed in service. So when asked, he agreed to serve. He really felt like he may have been better served in a uniform as a military leader, as opposed to their political leader. As it turned out, he was both commander-in-chief, maybe somewhat to the dismay of the military leaders that served under him. In fact, one of the reasons Davis seemed like a logical choice was that he had a military background. He had been trained and graduated from West Point, the United States Military Academy, in 1828. He led a regiment of Mississippi soldiers in the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. And then in the 1850s, he had served as Secretary of War under the Pierce administration. And so with that kind of military background, people felt that Davis would be a good leader in that respect. Because even though in February of 1861, many people hoped that war would be and could be avoided, people were certainly in the South and in the North preparing for what was very likely to be an armed conflict. Davis was also a very prominent American statesman at the time. He had served in both the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. I think Davis had become very much known as being an ardent states' rights politician, a strong Democrat, and definitely rose to the top of a lot of people's minds in February of 1861 when they were forming the Confederate government in Montgomery, Alabama. Davis was not very much in favor of secession. Actually, one of the reasons that Davis was not an obvious choice to be president of the Confederate States of America is because he wasn't radical enough. His farewell speech to the U.S. Senate was very heartfelt, and he had hoped that there would be peaceful relations between the Union states and the seceded states. And when those six states who left the Union met up for the Confederate Constitutional Convention, Davis wasn't the only option. There were a few other prominent secessionists who were also being considered. But I think that one of the things that happened during the convention was that it was felt that 
a fire eater, which is what the term in the 1860s was for a ardent secessionist. Fire eater. Fire eater. That they would be too polarizing to lead the entire Confederacy. They would be too radical. I mean, ironically enough, you know, this is oftentimes referred to as the revolution of 1860, 1861. And it takes radicals to start a revolution. But oftentimes, once a revolution has moved into the phase where they're starting to organize, it's moderates who come to lead because moderates in general are able to sort of bring the two extremes together. And there was something else to consider here, why you would need a moderate. The Confederacy in February of 1861 still didn't have Virginia. Everybody in Montgomery, everyone forming the Confederate government understood that in reality, if the Confederacy was going to be successful in gaining and maintaining their independence, the Upper South, meaning Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas. These places were necessary to be brought in and no place in their minds was more important than Virginia. Virginia was the most populous of the what would ultimately become the Confederate States of America. Virginia was the most industrialized and Virginia was at the border, or you know, what would become the border of primarily the slave states and the non-slave states. If the Confederate States of America had not earned Virginia's support, which was uncertain in February of 1861, you know, the fate of the Confederacy would have been very, very different. It may have been much more short-lived because it was much less populous, much less able to support a war in the event of a war. Virginia was very much on the fence about whether he would even join the Confederacy or remain loyal to the Union. Twice it voted no to secession. So as word started spreading to Virginia that Davis was an option for president, that was much more palatable than a fire eater, you know, one of those radicals. It wasn't until after Fort Sumter is fired on by the forces of the Confederate States of America and the fort surrenders. And then Lincoln calls for volunteers from Virginia to suppress the rebellion, as he put it, that Virginia ultimately decided to secede. So on February 9th, 1861, the Provisional Congress unanimously, after, you know, some politicking, they unanimously elect Davis as president. Nine days later, Davis returns to his home in Mississippi to be inaugurated. He was still considered provisional president, though. To be legitimate, there'd need to be a popular vote. But they had to hit the ground running. They had a government to organize. And his inauguration speech at the time isn't exactly fanning the flames of war. One of his goals was to try to convince the other slaveholding states to join this confederacy in order to add, you know, strength to this venture. In 1861, they thought maybe they could avert a war and that they would just be allowed to leave peacefully. 
Ironically, the Confederate government even creates a constitution that's almost identical to the U.S. Constitution. At the time of the American Civil War, both the Union and the Confederacy believed that they were continuing what had begun with the American Revolution. The Confederates and even Jefferson Davis in early speeches when he's inaugurated suggests that you know they are the proper and rightful continuation of what the founders had intended and that they were the true Americans. That they were continuing the work of their grandfathers and that they were defending themselves from an oppressive, tyrannical government. The Constitution was very similar. There were a few changes that they had made based on their experience in what they would term as the old union. One of which was they struck out the part of the Constitution that says, we the people in order to form a more perfect union. And instead they wrote, we the people, each state acting in its sovereign and independent character. So that was one of the changes to the Constitution. Others were, of course, they eliminated protective tariffs, which had been a major cause and argument. In case you were wondering, that's a tax put on goods that are being imported from other places. Obviously, the Confederate Constitution more overtly protected the institution of slavery. They, in some ways, weakened the power of the executive branch and gave more power to the states. I mean, this was their entire cause, essentially, that the states should wield more power than the central government. Of course, in wartime, it becomes very difficult because it took a united effort to raise armies, to fund armies, to maintain what peace they could to make treaties. I mean, it just became very difficult for the executive in the Confederate States of America to lead without being strong. Davis, at the time of his presidency, was a much different person than he was in his youth. And let's go down this rabbit hole just a bit. He married into the family of a Virginia-born president. He had married Sarah Knox Taylor in 1835. She was the daughter of Zachary Taylor, so Virginia connection there. She passed away three months after they were married. They both got malaria. They both nearly died. He becomes a recluse for almost a decade and just emerges. So he had been a boisterous, impish, playful, you know, young man who after the death of his wife and after nearly dying of malaria becomes the Jefferson Davis that I think people know from what they know about him during the Civil War. He's, you know, sort of much more cold and stern and people very often referred to him as being aloof. When you learn about somebody who was on the wrong side of history, it's very difficult when you learn about them as people to see them in the same light as being only defined by the worst thing that they did or that they're known for. I really think that that's something that as we sort of reimagine what our historical landscape is gonna look like, as we reinterpret 
our history, I really do hope that we don't lose our ability to be empathetic. I mean, history should allow us to gain empathy. For many people, Jefferson Davis is the evil leader of the Confederate States of America whose sole goal was to keep four million people in bondage and the next generation and the next generation and the next generation in bondage. And you know, that is true, that you can't deny that. But it's not the only story of Jefferson Davis. And our story continues with his election. Ten months after being appointed president, Davis and provisional vice president, Alexander Stevens, both run unopposed in the Confederate election on November 6, 1861. That made it official. And then the inauguration wouldn't be until February 22nd of 1862. So the Confederacy was already a year old when Jefferson Davis was officially inaugurated as the president of the Confederate States of America. By this time, the capital of the Confederacy was now in Richmond. And the date Andrew Talkoff mentions here is really important. Davis was inaugurated on February 22nd for a reason. That's George Washington's birthday, and the inauguration was held in very inclement weather outside at the base of the George Washington equestrian statue on Capitol Square here in Richmond. Washington was a major symbol for the Confederacy because Washington was the first revolutionary, right? The most famous revolutionary, the father of our country. In Jefferson Davis's second inaugural address, he opens with fellow citizens. On this, the birthday of the man most identified with the establishment of American independence and beneath the monument erected to commemorate his heroic virtues and those of his compatriots, we have assembled to usher into existence the permanent government of the Confederate States. Quite the symbolism here. The symbolism was not lost on anyone. And in fact, if you look at the seal of the Confederate States of America, at its center is George Washington. Not only George Washington, but the image of George Washington as he appears on that statue on Capitol Square in Richmond. Davis himself would eventually be immortalized with the statue in the former Confederate capital, on its grandest boulevard, full of monuments to Confederate heroes. Unveiled in June of 1907, it stood for 113 years, until June 11, 2020, when the bronze Davis smashed the cobblestone of Monument Avenue toppled by protesters in the midst of their own revolution against systemic racism. While his statue may be gone and coming down in communities all around our nation, his story doesn't go away. Jefferson Davis is an important part of that story as the head of a movement 
that would have divided the United States into two or more? I mean, you really don't know. Had the Confederate States of America been allowed to secede from the United States and had not been brought back by defeat in war and through Reconstruction? I mean, we could look a lot more like Europe today. Jefferson Davis, it's important to know his story. In the history of American politics and the history of our country, this is an important chapter. Davis is also important because that chapter doesn't end in 1865. The next century is spent with our country struggling with what role African Americans would play in the history of our nation after emancipation. Confederate memory continued White supremacy continued. Racism continues. Jefferson Davis is one part of that story. It's difficult to understand that story without understanding the history of the Confederacy, the history of Jefferson Davis. Should Jefferson Davis be memorialized in public spaces is a question that is being determined today. I think right now people believe that public celebration, public memorialization of symbols of the Confederacy do not represent the nation that we are and the nation that we want to be. November 6, 1861, Jefferson Davis is elected as the first and only president of the Confederate States of America. His entire presidency plagued with war. It ended when the government he led fled Richmond. The Confederacy crumbled. The United States made whole again. Though the cracks of division, a scar still visible today. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. This week, instead of thanking digital director Kate Albright, I think she should really thank me. I feel like she's looking for a slow clap here, guys. Should we give her a slow clap? Okay, I deserve that. And as always, I have massive appreciation for the executive producer extraordinaire, Colton Weekly. Did I deliver that with enough gusto, vigor? I really want to hear that grumble from across the room. <laughs> and thank you to associate producer Sam Maneri. She created our beautiful How We Got Here VA Instagram page. And she really wants you to like us and find us. Shout out to our guest this week. First timer on our podcast, Dr. Gregory Smithers, a professor of history at VCU. And one of my favorite people to interview, Andy Talkoff, the Senior Director of Curatorial Affairs at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Next week on episode six, the fight in Virginia to give women the right to vote. I think it's fair to say that Virginia women would not have gotten the right to vote if it were not thanks to the men in 36 other states. 
a 72-year, three-generation battle that came down to one vote. When people asked him why he did it, he just said, I think a boy's best choice is always to follow the advice of his mother. You cannot write a better story than this. Plus, History is a wonderful way of understanding us, the human race, past, present, and future. The day the angel of the Confederacy is born, and the title she was given that's still debated to this day. There's a lot of mystery, in other words, surrounding what is, no doubt, one of the most famous documents of its kind in Confederate lore. And... About 20 young men from around the Commonwealth of Virginia arrived to take on this new task that was an experiment. No one really knew how it would go, whether it would be successful, whether it would fail. The founding of the Virginia Military Institute. Learn all about its military battle to survive the Civil War. There's never been a time before or since where a student body has, under its own command, been engaged in combat in that manner. That's next week on Episode 6. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.